0: All right. So it's, oh, oh, it is on. Okay, great. So uh, what we did last week is we started kind of talking about, I just used the generic heading, God's abilities. Um, And we talked about some of those, but uh, we're kind of dipping back to that after having gone through, you know, God's character, like his compassion, his grace, his loyal kindness, uh, things like this. Now we're kind of going back to God's Abilities, which are the things you normally kind of initially think about when you think about uh, God. And we're talking under this general heading of God's sovereignty. And we said last week that, simply put, God's sovereignty is his lordship and rule over all. So when you think of uh, a sovereign, right, of a country, uh, that person, at least historically, has had uh, lordship and rule. And so when we think about God, we think about his lordship and rule over all. But that entails many, many things. And so we kind of just last week talked in generic terms about, yeah, the Bible absolutely affirms God has sovereignty, absolute rule over all. But we made two distinctions. One is uh, when we think about God's sovereignty, we need to remember what we learned about the persons of the Trinity, uh, namely that um, the... Uh, When we talk, of course, the three persons exercise a rule over all that they have made together, but then we even think about the roles of the persons within the Trinity, and we're going to say that the Father uh, has, um, we're ultimately backing up to the sovereignty of the Father, um, even uh, in his role, not his nature, but his role um, in the persons of the Trinity. And then we also talked about, when we talk about God's sovereignty, we're distinguishing between the reality of God's rule over all, which is true. Like, God has never ceased to rule over all. Uh, never, ever, never will. None, uh, he, he always rules over all. But the display of that sovereignty is not always apparent. In fact, um, it's been contested, right? Uh, the fall contested God's sovereignty over all. And in fact, Jesus uh, very clearly says, uh, this world, and the Apostle John, along with him, um, says that this world lies in the power of the evil one. Uh, In fact, Paul calls uh, uh, Satan the god of this world. Uh, He calls him the prince of the power of the air. So definitely God's rule is contested, and there are some ways in which the display of God's sovereignty is absent, but it is not really absent. It is not truly absent. Um, And so we just need to remember that when we talk about God's sovereignty. Now, like I said, when we talk about God's sovereignty, that entails other, uh, I'll use, use that word, abilities, That God has. And so one of the ones that it must entail is God's power. If God is sovereign and he rules over all, and he does, uh, well then it uh, says something about God's power. God has to have the power to back his rule up. Um, And so that's what we want to talk about this morning is the power of God. Um, If God rules over all in reality, and he does, he must have the power for that rule to be effective. Okay? So what we're going to do first is just to see how does the Scripture talk about God's power. Uh, so we're going to go to multiple passages. We're kind of going to, we're going to go in a canonical order um, or at least a uh, kind of a chronological um, order of writing um, a little bit. but we're going to actually start in Job. So we're going to start in Job, which chronologically is, I think is the first book written. Um, but let's go to Job. Let's go to Job 42. Now, Job 42 is the end of the book. Uh, Right before Job 42, and 42 is when Job... um, A lot of stuff has happened by the time we get to 42, right? What has most immediately happened uh, in, say, Job 38 through uh, 41... Uh, that produces what Job's going to say in Job 42? Yeah, God responds. And what does God say? Yeah, and uh, where were you when? And then he just, chapter after, just listing, uh, what? What does he list? Attributes, creation, um, you know, so really a lot of it is just his creative power. Um, you know, uh, is, is mostly what is talked about. Um, and in uh, just full display, time after time of, uh, after um, time, there's actually a great song out. Um, what's it called? I think it's called Orion or something like that. It's kind of a rockish sort of song, but it's really great. It just builds, it's, it's a based on what's happening here in, in Job. And it just builds to this crescendo, and it's just beautiful. Anyway, so what we want to see, though, is given that backdrop in Job 42, 2. Uh, well, Job 42, 1 and 2. Uh, someone go ahead and read that. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So based on all that Job has seen, he confesses this, and he confesses more as well. He confesses, I was wrong to question you. But what does he say here in relation to the the theme of God's power? Yeah. Yeah, so no purpose of God can be thwarted, which, uh, and then right before that, you can do all things. Yeah, he recognizes his authority, which means he recognizes his power, right? He, God has the power to back it up. No one can thwart God's purposes. So he says you can do all things, and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. So God can do all things, and uh, because of that, any purpose that God would have uh, cannot be thwarted, cannot be thwarted, okay? So uh, that's that's um, the first text we can look at to talk about God's power. Let's go to Genesis. And let's go to Genesis 18. Now, in Genesis 18, the backdrop is um, God's covenant with Abraham. Um, And part of that promise is um, many offspring, kingly offspring, through Abraham. Uh, He's had Ishmael by this point um, through Hagar. Um, But in Genesis 17, God says, no, it's going to be through uh, Sarah that this is going to happen. And then God comes visiting in Genesis 18, along with a couple angels, comes visiting. And so you kind of know this story. Um, You know, Sarah uh, laughs, um, God says, "Yes, Sarah, I'm going to come back in a year. Sarah is going to have a child. Um, so let's pick it up in verse 13 and 14. So someone go ahead and read Genesis 18, 13, and 14. Okay. So, who's talking? The Lord. Yeah, Yahweh is talking. Uh, He's using his personal name. And uh, where do we see the thematic connection to his power? What does he say? Yeah, is anything too difficult for me? Which is a rhetorical question, expecting an answer, no. (laughs) Um, No, there is nothing too difficult for me. And this is God himself declaring that there is nothing too difficult for him. And he's just applying that to this situation where you've got, uh, what is it, Abram at this point? I think Abram's 100, and Sarah's 90, right? Um, so, uh, humanly impossible, but God says, there's nothing too difficult for me, right? Um, and so, again, that, that just, we see, um, we see God declaring his power in this connection, okay? Any questions, comments thus far? We're just marching through text, kind of picking up what does God say about himself and his power, Okay, let's go to Exodus 3. So if you think about displays of God's power, you know, in Job and in, obviously in Genesis too, um, you see God's creative power. Um, but then if you want to think of other just tangible displays of God's power, if we just look at the birth of Isaac, uh, uh, or that promise anyway, uh, but you would think of the Exodus, right? And you would think of the plagues, these great devastating plagues. And indeed... Uh, that is a uh, the way God kind of sets it up. It's a display of His power. So Exodus three nineteen through twenty, um, God is speaking here. Uh, he's talking to Moses about the exodus and His plan there. Uh, someone, go ahead and read Exodus three nineteen through twenty. Okay, so where do we see a connection with the theme of God's power? How is that kind of brought in here? He knows Pharaoh's heart. Yep. Knows Pharaoh's heart, okay. So that's more his omniscience, but what? yeah, his mighty hand, right? So that's a constant refrain, not only in the Exodus narrative, but then later in the whole like Old Testament, let alone we could probably think of cases too in the New Testament, but God's mighty hand, and outstretched arm. And he says, I'm, I'm going to do that in the Exodus. Because Pharaoh's going to harden his heart, but I'm going to break him. Basically, that's what God is saying. I'm going to break him with all of my wonders. Um, and so you think of all of the plagues. You think of not only that, but after the plagues, when Pharaoh goes chasing um, uh, Israel, parting of the Red Sea, all of this, right? That's just God's power on display, right? His creative power, but it's like a really a devastating anti-creation power um, on on display um, through the Exodus. And God says, "I'm setting it up that way." In fact, He sets it up that way. He makes this clear as He talks to Moses and others. I'm doing this so that all the nations might know My name um, and to see My you know My awesome power. Okay, so let's now go to Psalm one fifteen. Uh, We were actually looking at this a little bit last week. Um, Let's just do Psalm 115, verse 3. Okay, so what does that say? Yeah, and and in particular, how is that framed here? He does what? He wants to, right? God does what he wants to. He's in the heavens and he does what he wants to. Um, uh, It's according to his will. So whatever he uh, wills to happen, he's going to make happen. He's going to, and he can do it. Um, It's that simple. Uh, Go to Daniel. We also looked at this one last week, but it's worth repeating. Daniel 4. Um, Again, the the humbling of Nebuchadnezzar, who thinks he's so great. Um, And then you get Nebuchadnezzar, kind of like Job in a way, I suppose. Although Job was in a better situation than Nebuchadnezzar was. Um, But uh, Daniel 4, 34, and 35. Someone go ahead and read that. Okay, so where do we see God's power in this passage? Does according to his will, which sounds an awful lot like Psalm 115.3, right? Like God's going to do what he's going to do. What else do we see? No one can say anything against him. No one can stay his hand, right? So kind of goes back to what Job said. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. So God's hand is outstretched. He's going to do something. Uh, no one's going to oppose that. Like you can't. Like it won't work. Um, God is unthwartable. In in his and what he's gonna do, he chooses to do something. He's gonna execute it. Uh, You can't stay his hand. You can't force his hand back. I always think about that. Like so, um, Alina's small enough where I can move her hands. Right? I can I can pull them apart from something. um, But no one's gonna do with that with God. Absolutely no one. Uh, Right. Right. So the people can say, you know, blasphemous things against God, but it's not going to make a difference um, in what happens. Okay, let's jump to the New Testament and see the same theme. Uh, Let's go to Matthew 19. Uh, Matthew 19, we have the rich young guy um, who says, you know, good teacher, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And then there's this whole interchange, and the young uh, he says, "Well, sell all you have and come follow me." He goes away sad. Um, And then uh, Jesus says something shocking in relation to this. Let's pick it up in Matthew 19, verse 24, Um, and let's read Matthew 19: 24 through 26. Okay, so where do we see God's power here? Yeah, and where is man limited here? Yeah, salvation. So, uh, he, um, he's saying uh, that's impossible with people. That can't do it. But, with God, um, all things are possible, specifically in this case in relation to salvation, right? So, we see God's power in display in the very act of saving people, uh, as we've talked about, from his own wrath. Let's see an even more poignant example. Go to Mark. Actually, it's very similar, in some sense, to what we just read. Uh, Go to Mark 14, and um, we're going to look at Jesus in Gethsemane, we're going to look at Mark's account of it, Um, and so Jesus, you know, says, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death, remain here and watch, and then someone read verses 35 and 36 of Mark 14. Okay, so what do we see here in relation to God's power?
1: Purposeful.
0: Okay, yeah, it's purposeful. What, is, what, is, what does Jesus say? Yeah, and what is Jesus applying that reality to in this situation? All things are in his hands, All things are in his hands Jim. You have the power to change this, specifically like Jesus going to the cross. So think about that, right? Like here, here the son has been sent on this mission, and uh, we would say that, you know, Jesus, according to his human nature, um, just like any human um, would, is, you know, shying away from uh, death, um, it's not like something he wants to go through. And I think even more than that, right, the, the, because you got to understand that on the cross, the eternal weight of the wrath of God is going to be poured out. And so that's the imagery of the cup. We'll talk about that in Matthew in a couple weeks. The cup of God's wrath uh, that he's going to drain. Uh, it's not a pleasant thing at all. Like, it, Jesus wants to avoid it if he can. Um, and so... In that context, the son, crying out "Abba, Father," is saying, "Everything's possible. Is there another way?" Right, and so, but Jesus is invoking God's power to say, "Well, is there another way for this to unfold?" Um, which is, what does that say? Uh, now, now, let's let's think about that. What what happens? Does that does Jesus' prayer get answered? Yeah, it gets answered. Well, how does it get answered? Yeah, no. <laughs> so, God does have the power to change it, but he's not going to. Right? So, it also brings up this issue that um, God can do things that he doesn't do. Right? Uh, Jesus is acknowledging, the Son is acknowledging that, Father, you could change this if you want. Uh, and the Father says, No. Yes? Yeah. Yeah. I think, well, we would definitely, we gotta be careful here because, again, when we think about Jesus, the person of Jesus is the same person of the Son from all eternity. And in particular, in this context, and so that one person, that one person um, has two natures. And so that one person um, never has surrendered his divine nature, ever, Uh, but he, in living authentically as a human, limited um, himself in the use of that um, divine nature, subject to the will of the Father, because there are points in the Gospels where it's like, well, it seems like he's using his his divine nature there. Um, But you see him limit it Uh, and he's functioning in his human nature, but it's the same person, right? So I think also, I mean, Jesus knows the plan. That's very clear from John, right? Like, the Father has sent me, and he sent me to John 10, right, to lay down my life that I may take it up again. Like, he knows the whole plan, right? But when we see the Son here, I think he's really, I mean, he's speaking as the Son, Right? Um, so, it's not its not only, like, I think there's this revulsion for, the human revulsion from death. Right? Uh, which is just, that's kind of how God's programmed humans, right? Like, to avoid death. Not a pleasant thing. But, uh, Jesus is, he's talking about the cup. Right? He's talking about the cup of wrath that he's going to drink. So, that's beyond... I mean, yes, an individual human, apart from the work of Jesus Christ on their behalf, is going to drink that cup. Uh, But I think we see the son here, like realizing what's coming. Um, But in the sense, like, there's all—it's not like Jesus' will is opposed to the Father's, right? That's very clear here, right? Like he is—he is surrendered to the Father's will. He knows what's coming. Um, uh, He's alone at this point. Like, there's no one else around. So we asked the question, is it for our edification or was this real? Well, it's real, but it's also for our edification, right? This is real, Um, there's nothing that indicates that it's not. So um, now there's a point at which we're gonna have to cry mystery, like I just, you know, there's a point at which I don't fully understand all of uh, the interactions in the persons of the Trinity, especially within the incarnation, but I think what we, we have to take the text and what it says, right? And this seems like the son, the one son, uh, uh, shrinking back in a sense—not out of cowardice, um, but uh, he knows what's coming um, in this situation. But for our purposes, for our purposes, what we want to take away is what is Jesus, here's the son acknowledging the father has the possibility of doing other, right? He has the power to change all of this. Jesus acknowledges that. Who better to know than Jesus? Um, But he's not. And so what we see is, again, an ascription of God's power, but we also see an ascription of uh, the reality is uh, the Father could do things that he doesn't. God can do things that he doesn't do. Um, And that's the main kind of takeaway that I wanted you to see from this. Yes, Mike? Yeah. And we gotta keep in mind that when we talk about the will of the Trinity, there is one content and purpose of will, right? So there's no like division in that will between as far as content and purpose between the persons, but the implementation of that one will will look slightly different according to the persons. Uh, and so uh, we see Jesus submitting, right? Uh, and even in his plea, there's no, like, there still needs to be a ransom. There still needs to be a payment. The question is, can can this, this hour pass? Um, so... Yes, Uh, are are these questions about the, like, divine and human natures of Christ? Because I'm going to preach this in Matthew in the coming weeks. What I wanted us to see here is about God's power. So I want to keep us on track on that. The questions you're asking are very good, uh, but they're kind of about inter-Trinitarian, like, workings, um, which we're going to have to wrestle through in the same event in Matthew. But as far as, like, what we're doing today is we're just talking about God's power in a generic sense. So if you have other questions about that, you can ask me after or whatever, but um, uh, I just want to keep us moving on that track. So any other questions related to the issue of God's power? Okay, so let's keep going. Um, now let's see another one in the Gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Let's go to Luke one thirty five. Uh, So here we've got um, Gabriel visiting Mary, talking about um, the uh, conception, the virgin conception she's going to have. And in the middle of this, we get Luke 135. Notice this. What does it say? All right, so where do we see God's power in this context? Yeah, through the Holy Spirit, um, the incarnation happens through the power of God, which is like, you know, it's just um, the most... You think about the incarnation and what is happening... It's, it's dizzying and trying to fathom what is, what is about to happen, but it's ascribed here to God's power, right? That uh, what is about to happen in the Son, the eternal Son, adding a human nature to his divine nature, is ascribed to the power of God, implemented, in this case, through the Holy Spirit. Which reminds us, right, that all three persons have this power. When we talk about the power of God, uh, all three persons share this power. In this particular case, we see it um that implementation through uh the most high, through the father, right, and imp- implemented through the Holy Spirit, right? But it's the power of the Trinity working through this. Okay? Yes, Tony. And it's kind of intriguing that there's kind of this parallel context, I guess you would say. So if we move on and we you hold your relative mm-hmm. you remember old days, we can also concede mm-hmm. Mhm. put in a different context, mm-hmm. or nothing will be impossible. Mhm. Mm-hmm. Yep, good. And what's interesting even if we think back to what we saw earlier with Abraham, right? There's there's the, there's a kind of string of barren women in the Old Testament when God's power acts. But then it's like here we get a comparison between all right, that was nothing nothing is impossible with God. He allows the barren woman, even the old barren woman to become pregnant. Uh, but then here's like super abundant. Beyond that um, is uh, the Virgin um, Birth or the Virgin Conception. Um, so uh, amazing. Let's go to let's go to the New Testament letters. Let's go to Ephesians. Again, it's, this is just kind of the way of getting a feel, a tangible feel for how the Scriptures itself talk about God's. So we're not thinking of it in just kind of, kind of some abstract way, uh, but we're thinking of it in terms of how God describes it of himself. So let's do Ephesians 3, and um, Ephesians, Paul is praying, uh, he's kind of coming to a close on um, kind of the more instructional portion of the letter, uh, and then he closes this way in Ephesians three twenty through 21, what does he say? Good. So where do we see God's power here? What do you see about it? Yeah, and earlier in the letter he says that it's the same kind of power that raised Christ from the dead kind of power. Right? So that's the power at work within us, which is amazing. But what else does it say? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So abundantly, more abundantly than all we ask or think which means that whatever conception of God's power we have, it's beyond what we can think, right? So we got to keep that in mind when we think about God's power, is like, um, well, God's giving us inklings of what his power looks like through the scriptures, uh, but it's beyond our comprehension of the level of his power. It, It intersects with what we already said, right? God has the ability to do more than he does. And what he does in the whole of scripture is... Absolutely amazing, right? They're you know go back to the Exodus. He describes them as wonders, right? They're just just absolutely incredible. But God can do more than He does, and He can do more than we think He can do. Um, yeah, so it just kind of gives you a conception of when we talk about God's power, it's um, it's big. <laughs> it's bigger than we can we can we can we can grasp, um, which leads to. Even one of God's titles that we looked at earlier, Revelation 1 8. Let's finish up kind of our march through um, for God's power. And here you've got the Father speaking in Revelation 1 8. He says, This I am the Alpha and the Omega. First letter of the Greek alphabet, last letter of the Greek alphabet, which is just a way of these, I'm, I'm everything, everything is about me, um, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The Pontokrator, the, the Almighty One, right? Which, given what we've seen in, in all of scripture, that is that is very much an appropriate title. He is the Almighty. Even people that don't really believe in god they'll call him the almighty right or at least reference him that way because when you think about god and even paul says this in romans 120 right even everyone knows from the creation of the world just from the creation itself the effects of god's power that god has is the almighty he has great power now all of that being said there are things that god cannot do can you list some of them? Sin. Yes, very good. God cannot sin. In fact, James 1.13 says he cannot be tempted by sin. Okay, So God cannot sin. Uh, God cannot be tempted by sin. Can you think of other things that God cannot do? He can't his word. Yeah, he can't contradict his word. Uh, really, that would intersect with the idea of what 2 Timothy 2.13 says. He cannot deny himself. Which is pretty broad-reaching when you think about it, right? Because, um, you know, you think of all of this character that we've been talking about in God and all of who God is. He can't, he can't deny himself, so he can't act in a contradictory way to who he is, uh, according to his nature. Um, so uh, that's going to cover a lot of ground. In fact, it's in a, well, pretty much going to cover everything. Uh, anything else that you can think of? That oh, Second Timothy. Two thirteen, yeah. Second Timothy two thirteen. Uh, it's in the midst of a poem, and we actually looked at it uh, a, couple, a few weeks ago. But it's uh, God can't deny Himself. Uh, he cannot. He cannot deny who He is. He, um, he, he cannot act in a way that is contradictory to who He is. It's impossible. Which means, going back to that's going to also cover He can't sin, right? Because He is absolutely pure and good and righteous. Uh, he can't be tempted by sin. He, there is no inclination um, towards those things, unlike you know, humans. He can't be Very good. Yeah, he, uh, Psalm five four says that he cannot dwell with evil. He cannot dwell with evil, right? So we, that intersects with the idea of God's presence. Like God is absolutely pure, um, holy, uh, glorious. He cannot dwell with evil. Um, it's like matter and antimatter. It's not gonna. It's it's not gonna work. Right? God's going to annihilate any evil that draws near to him. So, yeah, Mike first. Right, yeah, Second uh, 2 Timothy 2.13. He can't deny himself. Uh, Susan. Me, he cannot see our sin... Yeah, you'd have to, in the sense that uh, he doesn't count it against us, that would be true. In the sense that God forgets anything, that would be false, right? Um, because he knows, um, like what he does, God doesn't have divine amnesia, right? But he does not count it against us. Uh, and, and so in that sense, that statement would be, be true. Okay, uh, he can't lie. Uh, Titus 1-2, it, it actually t- it uses an adjective that says, uh, the, it's like the unlying God. Right? So it's not just that God cannot lie, it's he, he's the unlying God. Uh, Hebrews 6.18 talks about the, the same thing. It's impossible for God to lie in the context of an oath that's being sworn. Um, it's impossible for God to lie, which also means uh, God can't actualize a contradiction. Uh, like you, God can't make a married bachelor, you know, in one in the same state, right? He can't uh, make a uh, square circle. Right? It's a contradiction. It, it, can't, it can't work. So God can't actualize a contradiction because God can't lie. Um, can't right. <laughs> right. Or the person can't undo what he, he did and vice versa. So, Now, here's the thing, though. In all of this discussion that we're having, we've got to kind of be a little bit more specific. Um, does God have the communicative ability to lie? <laughs> Yes, God has the communicative ability to lie, like he could, uh, he he can speak, but he will not. So there's kind of a distinction that we need to make between can versus will, right? So can God, does God have the capacity in the sense of natural ability? Yes. Will he? Absolutely not because it's going to conflict with his moral nature, right? So we go back to he cannot deny himself. So you got to be a little bit careful in how we're thinking about God's ability and lack of ability, right? Um, We could say it like this. Does God have the opportunity and abilities to sin? Yes, but he will not. He will not, and indeed he cannot, because he can't go against his moral nature. So in some sense, when we talk about what God can and can't do, there's kind of like... The natural can, like, do you have the ability to do that? Versus the moral can, like, can you actually do that? No, because God can't; He can't do anything that's going to conflict with His own nature. So that's why, for all of that reason, uh, I don't. When you talk, what do we usually, uh, when we talk about God's power, what attribute do we do we normally title all of this? What heading? Omnipotence, right? But when you say omnipotence, what is? What would the average person on the street think that means? All-powerful. all-powerful, right? Or say it even more, like what does that mean to be all-powerful? Almighty, Almighty yeah, he can do all things, right? That would be the normal way you would say that. And in fact, we have scriptures that that use that language, right? But uh, then, uh, then you get... Stupid questions like, well, can God build a make a rock? So, and it's, literally, this has been like something that's been asked for centuries, right? Like you go back to the, middle, to the medieval, like theologians and all of this, and it's called the rock paradox. Can, can God build a rock so heavy that he can't lift it? You know, and, and one, it's just like, uh, it's a stupid question. But no, because to do so would actually, uh, he would end up denying himself. He would actualize a contradiction, so he can't do that, Right. But uh, when you that's why the, you got to be careful. It's not wrong to use the word omnipotence. But when you do so, you have to qualify and understand, well, how does Scripture talk about that? So when Scripture says that, or when Jesus says, right, all things are possible for you, yes. Um, but in such a way that it's not going to already conflict with who God is and God's universe, right? So... Um, you just got to be careful about how you talk about God's power, and what does that mean? Yeah, Eden. Uh, In sense of his decree, uh, like, he he has always known and decreed what he's going to bring about, right? So, uh, but in terms of his relation with human beings, yes. But that's something he already knew was going to happen, right? So, like... You think about uh, think about your personal salvation. Let's let's put it that way. Before you repented and believed in Christ, God was angry at you, and He was ready to throw you into the fires of hell. Now He decreed that you uh, would be in Christ, um, but when you repented and believed through His, um, you know, predestination, His election. Um, when that moment passed, a real relational change happened between you and God. He changed his disposition towards you. Otherwise, what we read of in the New Testament is nonsense, right? Because Scripture is very clear. There's a real relational change in God's disposition towards you. But not in the sense that like God changed his knowledge or like was at a whim like, oh, I was going this way. But then, oh, well, look at there, I'm just going to, you know, kind of arbitrarily change my direction. God already knew that was going to happen, but there is a real relational change that happened. Um, and so that's where you got to, you kind of, when you ask that question, it's like, well, you've got to have some nuance there, right? Because in the sense of God's knowledge and his decree, what he's actually going to do, no. Chris, how do you score the, the, before... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, no, because, I mean, when we think about, um, uh, well, even um, it's, it's that idea that all start as God's enemies, and God hates his enemies, right, those who are opposed to him. That does not conflict, and I think we talked about this, oh, I can't remember, what, it was probably in that discussion of God's wrath and, and love or something like that, that there is real uh, hatred, real animosity at the same time, God has chosen to foreknow, and that idea of foreknow is—it's um, always like used with the object of a person, not like, "Oh, that person's so good. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm thinking ahead of them, so I'm gonna choose them." It's not that idea. It's that He has set His love on you, but that doesn't mean that there's not a real disposition of anger towards your sin, um, and so there's a real change. Uh, he, he always knows you're going to be in Christ, right? He's predestined you to be in Christ. He's elected you to be in Christ. He's foreknown you and loved to be in Christ. But in the, the actual working out, like God calling history into existence next moment by next moment, um, there's a real relational change. Um, it seems like the scriptures would very clearly say, uh, you know, transferred, Colossians 1, transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son that's real like something real changed there um and and that's how you got to think about it yeah so um,
1: and
2: i would say too that reference is as a final view. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, the foreknown would actually start everything. So, like, if we go to Romans 8, um, God's fore... So, everyone... Let's put it this way. Every fallen human being, so that is everyone except Christ, is... is, starts as God's enemy. Starts under God's wrath. Starts uh, under, like, God's going to execute judgment against them. Um, However, from that uh, group... That um, God chose to rescue before creation's even happened yet, right? To rescue His people, in who are counted in Christ, foreknown. So foreknowing starts the whole process of salvation, but it also guarantees the end result. And maybe that's what you're saying is it's gonna because uh, right because Romans eight says ends in what those this golden chain that leads leads up to they're going to be glorified. Right, But in the, the working out, the actualization of God's eternal decree, right? Uh, there comes a moment when he regenerates and uh, allows, gives um, faith and repentance. And when there is faith and repentance uh, in Christ, then that person is then brought into union with Christ. So if you think about God's eternal decree... Like he, oh, in Ephesians 1 would say this, right? He is considering, if we could use such a term, he's considering his elect as in Christ. But they're not in Christ yet. They're only in Christ, they're only joined to Christ once repentance and faith happens, which is a real relational change that happens. Not in the sense that he's, like, changed his decree, but in the sense that he has changed relationships, relations uh, with a pr- individual creature. So yes, Tony.
1: So I'm I'm gonna make a statement here. Um, that's where I believe the true power of God lies as he is revealing it to us mm-hmm. is in his ability to save fallen creation. Mm-hmm. That is to me the most mm-hmm. the I mean God can make sons and he can make university mm-hmm. Mm hmm. Mm
0: hmm. And
1: he is so righteous, Yeah. It's beyond profound. Yes. And so, kind of in the context of what we've just been kind of talking here, I think Paul kind of gives us a good sort of insight into this whole kind of disposition. You know, the chicken egg almost kind of.
0: Right. We're kind of talking about it. right here in
1: Ephesians uh uh three fourteen
0: hmm. Yeah, go ahead and read that, Tony. For this
1: reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. There's, there's a statement of power right there. Mm-hmm. Right. He's coming right down into the hearts of men and giving us knowledge beyond our knowledge, so to speak, through Christ. Yeah. That should be humble. yeah. That's humble
0: Right. Yeah. And to you know, you tie that in with what we we saw, you know, thinking earlier about the the incarnation of the sun. To do that, you know, the the eternal God, the person of the Son, becomes incarnate. And it's just incredible. Like so, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, Mike. I look at it um, in a real
2: term,
0: We did select <laughs> Yeah. John would say the same thing. Yeah. And we're born again, yeah. It's not our right. God. Yeah. John 1 12 13, we talked about he gave them the right to be called children of God who were born not of uh, the will of man or the will of the flesh or the will of blood, uh, but of God, right? So. And all of that, again, just coming back to our theme, you know, displays God's power. So, you know, what we've seen, when you talk about God's power, we don't want to just talk about it in the abstract, because the Bible doesn't, right? We want to think about, how does it describe it? God can do all things that are consistent with his character, right? Um, Nothing is impossible with him that's consistent with who he is in such a way that he's not going to deny himself. Um, But then what are the particular manifestations of that? creation, the exodus, individual salvation, the incarnation, like all of these amazing realities, and it should humble us, right, um, and it should cause our hearts to uh, thrill, um, especially when, as we think about, and we sing, that's why God's given us music, so that we can sing about his greatness, so. Towards that end, let's go ahead and pray for our gathering here. Father, we praise you, that you are the Almighty, and that you have acted in profound ways that are beyond our comprehension, that are beyond our knowledge. Um, and, uh, Lord, you've just given us pictures and snapshots of who you are and what you can do. Um, and, Lord, we, um, we want this morning, even as we come together And it just—it just just looks like such a mundane thing: a bunch of people gathering together, singing some songs, listening to, and reading um, a book, um, expounded and explained, and um, fellowship and things like this. It just feels so mundane. But Lord, that's—that's where you show your power, because um, even as Ephesians three is talking about um, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit indwelling your people, not only individually but collectively and lord to do beyond what we could ask or think lord we look at we look at us we look at the church and we think it seems like we can't do all that much but this is this is a humble means that you have used to to display your power to display your glory and so we want to be a people just surrendered to that and desirous to see you work because we just love to see you work we love to see your power we love to see your grandeur put on display and just to be part of it and to see it. So Lord, help us this morning. Help us to worship and think rightly of you. And we pray these things in your name, amen.